Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Rich. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. It is a joy to be with you all. Thank you for your patience with our technology this morning. Hopefully you have all been able to connect and feel welcomed on our online community. Hopefully you're, those of you who are YouTube prefers, you're able to connect there as well now. Um, we appreciate your presence and participation in this unique setting during COVID-19. As we begin, I want to make sure you are engaging in the best way possible. I know some of you prefer Facebook or YouTube or Vimeo. They're all great. Um, but as far as dialogue and relational connecting goes, our online platform is the best place to be. That is onelifeseattle.org forward slash live. There you have a chat line. You have live prayer, our Bible app, notes section, links for the kids and youth, you name it. We'd love for you to join us there. Today we are closing out our sermon series called Believe and Live, looking at the Gospel of John. And in doing so today, we're going to be talking about love. Hopefully you crack the code of the theme between our worship set and, and Jessica's beautiful words for us today. Um, that's what we're talking about. And yesterday I got the COVID wedding privilege of being able to officiate a wedding. And not surprising, this was a theme of the wedding as well. And when we think about relationships, when we think about weddings and all those kinds of things, it's not uncommon that we hear the phrase, action speaks louder than words. And we've all experienced the truth of this phrase. Like it's not enough that my kids say that they're going to do their chores or they're going to do their homework. That's nice, but actually doing it is so much better, right? It's what we hope for, those actions that match up with those words. It reminded me this week of a song from 1990, which some of you are like, man, Richie, you are old. I wasn't even born then. Some of you are like, ah, you're young. Either way, 1990 song by the band Extreme called More Than Words. It speaks to this idea. Here's some of the lyrics, and no, I'm not going to sing it, but it, the lyrics go like this. Saying I love you is not the words I want to hear from you. It's not that I want you not to say, but if you only knew how easy it would be to show me how you feel. More than words is all you have to do to make it real. Then you wouldn't have to say that you love me because I'd already know. There's also an old worship song maybe some of you grew up singing. It talks about how people will know we're Christians by our love. It's not that they'll know we're Christians by our judgments or by our political party that we land in. It's not that they'll know we're Christians by our financial status or our level of education or the color of our skin. No, people will know we are Christians by the way we love like Christ loved all, meaning our identity in Christ will be best known and understood in how we live out our love for people in relationships. And in this series, story after story, we have seen Jesus present to anyone and everything that's going on in his day-to-day -day life. Every time showing us a different way to live, a better way to live, one that is rooted in presence and in the unconditional love and grace of God for all. Perfectly illustrated for us in the person of Jesus. It's this love of Christ that now compels us. It transforms us. It gives us a new identity and motivates us to live out this belief and faith in our actions. 
And so as we close out this series, I really want us to hold on to this idea of believe and live, and maybe even that idea of more than words. Particularly, I want you to think about your identity and what you do with your failures, what you do with your weaknesses, what you do with your sin. And I also want you to ponder how God, God might identify you with your weaknesses, with your mistakes, with your sins. And let's not forget or ignore how we identify others when their weaknesses and their failures and their sins affect us. What does the idea of believe and live look like when it comes to these areas? The reason I'm asking you to think about this is because we are going to be looking at Peter's story today and how God teaches us about faithful presence in the midst of our failures and weaknesses and our sins. And he's going to be teaching us about our identity and about love and grace in the midst of all of it. But before we do anything more, let's pause and open our time with prayer. Father, Son, Spirit, we thank you that you are with us. You are present. Even with us all being scattered around this city in our own homes, you are with us as close as our very breath. And you don't come to us when we're all perfectly clean. You come to us no matter what we're going through. And so, God, we ask that you would be with us, that you would help us to hear from you, and that we would move forward in that goodness and grace as a result. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So today we are looking at the last chapter of the Gospel of John. Last week, Greg did a phenomenal job of taking us through Jesus' death and resurrection, including number of post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples, including Thomas, and being present with Thomas in his doubts. Today we're looking at the last post-resurrection story here in the Gospel of John, and it's absolutely full of content that I find fascinating and I wish we had more time to dive into. But particularly today, I'm so fascinated by it, we're actually going to take a different kind of path of engaging the text than we often find taught in this section. And in doing so, I'm hoping it will challenge us to consider its application to our own story, to our own identity, and what it might look like for us to believe and live this out with others. Before we do anything more, though, we need to look at the text right before ours, which is the very end of chapter 20. This is right after the story of Jesus meeting with Doubting Thomas and the whole kind of touching the hands and the holes where the, the nails were. And it ends like this, John 20 30 through 31. It says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, doesn't that sound like the end of the gospel? It even ends with the verse that's been guiding the theme of our whole series. It's basically like John says, in conclusion, there's so much more that could be said about Jesus. There's so many more post-resurrection appearances, but I'm just going to stop here. But know that all of this is written for one reason, that we would believe and live in the power of Jesus. I share this because it's important to know that what we're about to look at 
is considered by many commentators and theologians as an epilogue or an addendum to the gospel, something that was added later on. And we get this because with this ending, we're left with some questions. One of the big questions is whatever happened to Peter? This is what chapter 21 is about. And all the commentators agree that the question of authorship, timing of which this was uh, written, should not distract us from its content. So, if you have your Bible, you can grab it. You can go ahead and turn to John chapter 21. We're going to start with verse 15. You can also use the Bible app, or you can just follow along. Um, the chapter first starts with the disciples having this amazing post-resurrection experience where they had been out fishing. And if we remember, this is back to their old way of life. This is what they used to do before Christ. And even doing that, they find themselves empty-handed. Nothing. And so Thomas, Nathaniel, Zebedee's sons, two other disciples, and Peter, who had just had these denying experiences, they're all there with this deep sense of failure. Not just in doing something brand new, like they've never done this before, but, but failure in something they used to have a strong identity in. And it's in their defeat, they have this encounter with Jesus, where upon listening to Jesus' advice, they are only then able to collaborate together into experience this massive catch of fish. They go on to have this intimate breakfast with Jesus, and it's this scene full of so much goodness and symbolism. But for today, our text comes uh, just as they're finishing breakfast. So that's what we're going to look at, starting with verse 15 of chapter 21. It goes like this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And just pause real quick. Note that he is referring to Peter as Simon, son of John. Again, this is back to his previous identity, and he's getting down to this. Peter says, yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me, exclamation point. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that the disciples would not, this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? 
This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would have been written. And that's how the Gospel of John ends. And what we see here is a focus on Peter. He was one of the first followers of Jesus. And before following Christ, he was a professional fisherman. In Christ, he had an identity of that being one who was very outspoken. He was an ardent disciple and one of Jesus' closest friends. He was enthusiastic, to say the least, strong-willed, impulsive, and often brash. And it's important to remember that Peter's initial calling from Jesus came at a miraculous fishing story very similar to what we see here in chapter 21. Peter was also the first to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples along with James and John. Only those three were present when Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus and when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. And Peter and John were the only ones given the special task of preparing the Passover meal. We see several stories where Peter showed himself to be very impulsive to the point of rashness. Like when Peter left the boat to walk on water to Jesus, promptly taking his eyes off Jesus and began to sink. It was Peter who took Jesus aside to rebuke him for speaking of his death and was swiftly corrected by Jesus, with Jesus referring to him as Satan. It was Peter who suggested erecting three tabernacles in honor of Moses, Elijah, Elijah, and Jesus and fell to the ground in fearful silence at God's glory. It was Peter who drew his sword and attacked the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear and was immediately told to put his weapon away. And it was Peter who boasted that he would never forsake the Lord, even if everyone else did and yet later denied Jesus three times. And it's very obvious that in the way our text is risen, written, that Peter, in his doubts and in his failures of his faith, is still feeling all of it, all of the emotions. Even after multiple post-resurrection appearances, Peter is back to his old way of life and his old identity. And even there, he's failing. It's as if he's given up or doesn't feel worthy of his calling, or at the very least, he's struggling with his identity and how to live. And so it's with this perspective that it becomes easy to reduce this conversation between Jesus and Peter here in John chapter 21 as this kind of reinstatement of Peter's discipleship or an attempt at some kind of reconciliation for a relationship gone bad. I mean, even the scene is almost a reenactment of his initial calling. So it makes the most sense that this has to be the moment when Jesus forgives Peter in particular, forgiving Peter for the ultimate foolishness and recklessness, denying Jesus when Jesus needed him most. Except, nowhere in this story 
does Jesus utter the words, I forgive you? Nowhere. The work of the cross is already done. And Peter has already been forgiven as a result. And as I've been reflecting on this story, what I've come to see here is that actually the person who needs to forgive Peter is actually Peter himself. I almost wonder if forgiveness is perhaps not the issue here at all. And don't get me wrong, we like to fall back on it frequently, assuming that's what's the most important thing to fix in the relationship, especially to mend this specific relationship. But in this case, after digging a little more in some careful study, I think it reveals that what Peter needs most is to accept who Jesus needs him to be. And I believe Jesus is 100% aware of this reality. I don't know if you've had one of those experiences where maybe with your kids or with someone, you have an argument or something, and you're waiting for the other to ask for forgiveness, but it's really you who needs to do it. it. It's you that needs to kind of work this out because they've already moved on. It's kind of like that. Now, this came to me after hearing Greg's sermon last week and rereading of Peter's denial in John. I found what I believe was Peter's true rejection, and that was of his own identity. What we see is that the question asked of Peter is not as it is in the Synoptic Gospels, where there we see the question, do you know this man, to which Peter responds, I don't know this man. In John's gospel, however, the inquiry posed on Peter is, aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter's response is what? He says, I am not. As a result, I wonder if this conversation between Jesus and Peter should take on a completely different meaning as a result. The truth is that Jesus doesn't blame or shame Peter Jesus does not ask for Peter's repentance, and I don't think Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, three times to remind him of his threefold denial, to test him or to trap him or to magnify the feelings of failure. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing, and if it is, I'm having problems with that because I don't see that as what Jesus does. That's not the Jesus I know and love and believe in. Instead, Jesus, I think, is reaffirming the disciple Jesus needs Peter to be. And the disciple Jesus needs Peter to be is that of a shepherd. You see, nothing causes us to question our identity like failures, mistakes, and our sins. We don't like to own this in ourselves. But the truth is that denying our identity is a reality we experience all too often, especially when we have failed at something. We deny who we are because we worry that we won't meet expectations. We deny who we are because we are afraid of disappointment. We deny who we are because we could be judged or even rejected for that truth. We deny who we are because we do not believe that we will be liked for who we are truly or we won't be loved for who we are truly. And so we play it safe around a lot of people in our lives, pretending and rightfully so. 
We may even feel like there are people who don't deserve the truth of who we are or that not everyone can be trusted with the truth of who we are. And so if we do this with people we know, those who are closest to us even, then it's not a stretch to think that we might do this with Jesus as well. And so when you think about Peter back in chapter 18, where his first denial came, it might be that he was just straight up terrified that what would happen to Jesus would happen to him, which what we learn is that it pretty much does. Maybe Peter was just unwilling to admit his identity because he wasn't ready yet. Maybe Peter couldn't affirm his identity because the garden and the whole ear-chopping situation was still so fresh in his mind, too painful, too personal. Maybe Peter was not able to say, I am, because he just couldn't believe it himself. Can anyone relate to that? We just can't imagine that Jesus would charge us with being his shepherds, to be his ambassadors. Because we can hide our true identity and our failures and our sins from others, but not from Jesus. And so understandably, we can't believe that Jesus would trust us. We can't believe that Jesus could believe in us. Have you ever felt that way? I wrestle with that all the time. But God is the only one that truly and fully knows us and our identity, including all of our weaknesses, and loves us completely, not just with words, but in actions. Amen? That's what we celebrate when we come to church to worship, when we take communion. And I think Jesus knows this about Peter, and I think Jesus knows this about us. Jesus knows all the feelings of failures and doubt and shame and struggle of identity, Peter feeling al alone and wrestling with all that, he knows that about that. And so what happens? Jesus shows up, pursues, comes to the shore, hosts a meal one more time and tells Peter and tells the disciples and tells us essentially, I still believe in you. I know who you are in all your strengths in all your feelings, and I love you unconditionally. And yes, you are exactly the disciples I need. You are currently the disciple the world needs for God to the world. Jesus comes, pursues in our weaknesses and says, I'm here with you, I'm present with you, and yes, you are who I want you to be. So then, as a result, I think this is more about what Peter believes about himself and his identity. Because again, Jesus has already done the perfect work of unconditional love and grace on the cross. Jesus has taken care of our feelings and our sins, but the question is, do we believe it? You see, the traditional kind of interpretation of these three questions here is that there are Peter's way of repenting of his three denials rededicating his life to Jesus and symbolic of Jesus's forgiveness, which isn't a bad thing, don't get me wrong. But looking at the Greek, it's really clear that this is actually all about love in action. And we see it in these special forms of the word love that is used. First word is agapao, which we've heard the term agape, that's the same root, and phileo. 
And there's two differences between the word knowing. One is called ido in the Greek, and the other one is gnosko. So what we see here is this, this word love, agapao, is kind of the self-sacrificing love best expressed in the work of Christ on the cross. It's the same love we see when Jesus says the most important of the commandments is to love God with the, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same fr- form of the word that Jesus uses when he says love your enemies. Phileo is very similar, but geared more to the love you show to the closest to you relationally. It even has kind of action. For example, in the scene, the signal of the kiss that was the sign of the betrayer to show who Jesus was at his arrest, that's the same word, to kiss. It's got action to it. It's also the same word used when Jesus says, if you belong to the world, it will love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And so they're similar but different. There's two types of love. There's also two types of knowing here. The first is called Ido, which is basically this idea of just a mental understanding. It's something we know in our head. And then there's another word, gnosko, which is this deeper knowledge that's grounded in personal experience. So it's not just something we know, but it's something that we've experienced. And so the first two times when Jesus says, do you love me? It's this word, agapao. And Peter responses, he says, you know that I love you. You, I know that I phileo you. The third time Jesus goes back and uses the other form of love, phileo. Do you love me? And Peter says, you gnosko, you know that I love you. Now, What does this all mean? It's a lot of Greek. It's a lot of craziness. I think what Jesus is saying is that I know you love me in words and in your mind, but I want to know your love in our relationship as evidenced in action. Jesus says, that's how I will know you really love me. Not only that, but Jesus is saying that this is where you'll most fully experience your true identity because your true identity comes from being completely known and completely loved. Do you believe this? That Jesus fully knows you, fully loves you, and sees you as an ambassador of God's love to the world. How would you answer Jesus looking at you, having breakfast with you, and saying, do you love me? It's the idea that our faith in Jesus is evidenced in our action, not perfection. If you love Jesus, it will be identified not so much in your words or in your simple mental understanding. It's deeper. It's in how you live it out in relationship with others. And not just those you care about, like your family and your friends. It's identified in how you tend, how you serve, and how you care for those in need around you wherever you go. So, as we close out this series, I really want us to go back to this idea of believe and live or, or more than words. And particularly, I want us to think about our identity and what we do with our failures, our weaknesses, and our sins, because we all have it. Do you tend to hide, avoid, give up, or go back to your old ways of doing things? That's what Peter did. 
That's what the disciples did. Basically, that's what most humanity does, dating all the way back to Adam and Eve. We hide. We go back. I also want you to ponder how God identifies you and thinks of your failures and your weaknesses and your sins. What we see here is that Jesus doesn't give up on Peter or the other disciples. We don't see Jesus recalling all their mistakes. Rather, we see Jesus present, pursuing of Peter and the others in their failures. Nothing has changed for Jesus. He still loves them all unconditionally. Jesus doesn't ask for forgiveness because he's already taken care of that on the cross. Instead, Jesus simply asks Peter and asks us, do you love me? How do you do with that? How do you think Jesus sees you? And let's not ignore how we identify others when it comes to failures and weaknesses and sins, especially when others' stuff affects us. Let's just be really honest. We are the first, right? We can sever relationships like that. We can literally hit unfriend on social media or give someone the silent treatment. We can speak badly about them with, when they're not around or we can think bad things in our mind. We avoid, we show contempt, we judge, we take away trust, you name it, and we do it so fast. Is that the way Jesus sees us and acts and invites us to act, or is that the way of the world? You see, the love of Jesus is transformative. It changes you from the inside out. It changes your identity. It changes the way you see others. And it's all rooted in our experience of God's love and grace with us, for us, and for all. So when you're posting things on social media, when you're talking about issues of race, if you're talking about the elections, when you're thinking about the homeless or the lonely in your community, when you think about the people at your workplace or your extended family or that estranged uncle or your neighbors or anyone you know with different thoughts or opinions or beliefs than you, how are you showing the love of Christ to them in action? How are you being a shepherd to those God has entrusted you with? Or maybe another way to ask that it is this. Do they know you're a Christian in the way that you're loving them? What we see today is that Jesus knows what we are going through and is fully present with us in our failures, in our questions of identity. There, Christ doesn't list our failures. He doesn't try to manipulate us or make us feel guilty. He doesn't ask us over and over again to just nail us with it. Rather, he serves us tends us in our needs, pursues us, feeds us, and most importantly, he loves us unconditionally. He brings us back to what's most important, and that's our relationship with God. He then asks us the most important and most transformative question, and that is, do you love me? So as we close, I ask you, do you love Jesus? Not just a simple word answer. How's your identity in Christ? Do you know you are a Christian beyond words but expressed in actions? Do others know that you're a Christian beyond words but expressed in action? Next week, we are launching a four-week sermon series called Citizens Becoming Healers in an Age of Division. 
And uh, these conversations are going to be the perfect follow-up to this series because they're going to be providing some tangible ways that we can live out our faith in a way that shows love and action, that helps foster unity, and will help us collaborate with God in bringing about the peace, the shalom of Christ. And so I hope you will join us. And as we close, I hope that you are challenged to not simply say we love Jesus, rather that we might be men and women who show this to be true in how we live it out in relationship to others. Amen? As we close, I want to invite Brian and Jessica to come back. Uh, they're going to play instrumentally for a few moments to give us some space to ponder what we've heard. Um, as they do, I uh, have a couple questions of reflection for you to consider as an application. Um, you can easily share your thoughts and your answers to these by using our online connection card, which will show up in our online platform here in just a moment. Um, feel free to take on one of these questions or a couple of them, but I would love to hear from as many of you as possible. Here they are. Question number one. How would you answer Jesus when asked if you love him? Peter gets asked three times. Jesus asks you, what would your answer be? And don't just say yes or no. How would you answer Jesus? Number two. On a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you that people would identify you as a Christian based on the way you lived your life? This is not intended to make you feel guilty. I don't think Jesus is trying to make us feel guilty. I think Jesus is inviting us to live different. And so how is that coming out in the way you live? Scale of 1 to 10. Number three, think of someone you know who is struggling with their identity or with their failures. How could you show them Christ-like love? Number four. In what ways have your failures and struggles with your identity gotten in the way of living out your faith in Christ? And lastly, number five, maybe more simply, how might God be inviting you to respond to what we've learned today? Again, I'd love to hear your thoughts on any or all of these. If you wouldn't mind taking some time to let me know, that'd be great. Uh, I want to invite you to use this space to ponder, to pray, to confess, to own, to give thanks, to receive, to be filled, to dream, whatever you feel called to in this time. I want to note that our prayer team is back live and the app is ready to go. So if you would like prayer for whatever reason, all you have to do is click request prayer to the left of the chat line and our prayer team will engage with you in the order in which it was received. Um, I'm going to close us with our own kind of moment of prayer Brian and Jessica will give us some space to reflect, and they're going to lead us in a song of response. Um, thank you for sticking with me, and uh, let me close us in prayer. Father, Son, Spirit, uh, I own that I kind of went a different way with this. And I hope it's because uh, you really wanted to remind us of how much you love us. I know I needed that reminder, and I hope others did too. And God, I pray that we would all be able to come to you in our weaknesses, in our failures, and in our sin. We wouldn't hide. We wouldn't run and turn away to go back to old ways or old identities. God, we pray through your Holy Spirit you would help us to believe that the love you have for us is as good as it is. It's unconditional you did the work on the cross on our behalf. 
you ask us if we love you, God. We want to be more than words in how we answer. And so we pray that you would empower us because just like the disciples, they can't do it on their own. They can't do it without you. Neither can we. We own that. And so we pray that you would empower us to be men and women who can actually live out this faith. Not perfect. We know we can't be perfect. Uh, But sincerely, God, help us to live as men and women that live out grace and peace and your love to others. Help us to be restrained in our responses. Help us to be restrained in our judgments and our um, thoughts of people and our thoughts about ourselves. And help us to hear from you about how you truly see us and how you truly send us. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.